Hello and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined by Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, how is life treating you in early October in uh, the great city of Boston, Massachusetts? Uh, life is life is good. Uh, I'm looking forward to Halloween, you know, and I'm enjoying the flurry of emails that happen around this time when people are told not to wear blackface uh, and other inappropriate costumes in October. You know, it's a, it's, it's our monthly reminder or our, our end reminder that it's a bad thing to, uh, you know, impersonate race. Um, That's <laughs> important, important public service announcements. We can signal boost that on the podcast. Just don't do it. Don't do blackface. Um, Harvey, I see it looks like you've got some scaffolding outside your window. Um, are, is it, is it, are you getting new facades? We are redoing the-, the facade here in the College of Fine Arts at Boston University, which means that uh, for about a year, the building's encased in scaffolding. And, and every so often, uh, you, you might hear it in this podcast, in fact, there might be a little bit of jackhammering occurring. So. Yeah, yeah, it's my gotta, it's my new normal, but it's pretty great. Gotta, gotta love city living. And we are joined by Sarah Bejung of York University. Sarah, what's going on in Toronto? Wait, real quick question about your office. How high up are you? What floor of your building are you on? I I'm I'm on the second floor, but I overlook a roof, so it looks like I, I'm on the first floor. Oh, that's interesting. I've been imagining you like on the 10th floor of some giant skyscraper, but that's just been in my head, I suppose. No, I know. I I mean, I now live on on a very high floor. So, you know, my home is is pretty high up, which is kind of a new experience for me. That's exciting. We're learning about all about your new life. Indeed. Indeed. In my new country, my, my beloved country, which, you know, I just watched the the English language debate among the federal leaders, and I am learning a lot about the parliamentary system here in Canada. It's fascinating. It's really it does, good times. That, that does sound good. I'll, I'll try to live vicariously through your somewhat less dysfunctional political system. You know, I don't know enough to, to weigh in on that at this point. <laughs> nice. And speaking of uh, blackface. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, we don't. Uh, clearly, those, 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 uh, those alerts have not made it uh, uh, thoroughly enough north of the border. So, yeah. Yeah, maybe we, sh- we should have done a Justin Trudeau segment, um, though I'm glad we didn't because, listeners, we have three exciting topics uh, for this edition of the podcast. We're going to talk about the decline of movie theaters in-, in the streaming era and its ramifications for live theater. We are going to talk in a somewhat related topic about theater and etiquette. Uh, Jeremy O. Harris's tweets about using his cell phone during a performance have spurred some commentary on the norms for theater audiences in the 21st century and the, and the assumptions that are underneath them. And finally, we looked at Waterwell Theater Company's new project called the Flores Exhibits. Um, this is a series of short videos hosted on their website in which performers read the testimonies of children held in U.S. detention sites. Um, and it's a, it's a powerful project, and we're going to talk about it at the end of the show. Um, before we get to those topics, uh, some news to round up. Um, the MacArthur Grant Award winners were announced in September, and director Annie Dorson uh, is, is one of those awardees. Her work focuses on non-human intelligence. We had Annie Dorson here in St. Louis for one of our colloquium talks um, a year or two ago, and her work is Fascinating. Really glad that she got that prize. Um, 
American Theater released its list of most produced American playwrights, and Lauren Gunderson again tops the list. Um, we have talked about Lauren Gunderson on the show before, and uh, there is also a, a an interesting slate. Uh, Slate.com profile of this highly prolific playwright. Um, listeners should check that out. Um, I'm going to do major Aster promotion at this moment. Members and listeners should register and go to Aster this year. We have a really exciting conference program and some of the final pieces are falling into place. Um, the highlights besides the exciting slate of plenarists and the wonderful working sessions and curated panels and field conversations um, are a, a roundtable on public-facing scholarship. So in place of the usual state of the profession um, panel, we've put together a roundtable of five exciting people, Robin Bernstein, ONTAP's own Sarah Bay Jung, uh, Martin Key Green Rogers, um, Eric Colleary, Miriam Felton Dansky. And these folks are going to be talking about different modes of public facing scholarly activity, dramaturgy, social media, curation, uh, theater criticism, editorial writing. We're really excited about that session. There's going to be a demonstration of this VR project called V Espace. It's a VR-based reconstruction of an 18th century Parisian uh, theater. That, I think, is already booked up. You can sign up for it by following a link on the conference program on the website, but they are taking uh, names for a waiting list. So if people want to see this exciting project uh, in progress, they should go ahead and, and snag one of those spaces. Is that, is, that one of the, is that the one that you're working on panel or the one that you're affiliated yeah. with? Yes. Um, uh, Jeffrey Leishman of LSU is one of the lead um, investigators on it. And I'm one of a sort of you know, second tier of scholars contributing to it, offering theater architecture and um, theater history knowledge. But it's a multi-university grant funded by the NEH that includes um, uh, Parisian universities, architects, theater historians, uh, software engineers, artificial intelligence, and, and sort of social physics theorists. It's a really exciting project. So I'm really glad that people are going to be able to see the, the tangible um, fruits of it at, at Aster in Arlington. And then we're, there's going to be a pop-up performance that we've been calling, something we've been calling a pop-up performance. Um, we've saved some spot, uh, a spot in the program. Um, and we're excited to announce that uh, Waterwell Theater's The Courtroom is going to see a staged reading at Aster. So this is a verbatim theater project. Waterwell, a New York theater company, um, who we will talk about later in the podcast, um, uh, has created this theater piece that is drawn from public documentation of a 2004 immigration case involving a woman from the Philippines who was married to an American citizen who inadvertently attempted to register to vote at a DMV, and that prompted this Kafkaesque um, uh, removal proceeding. Um, and so Waterwell has this theater project going on that they're staging in various places in New York City, and Aster got permission to do a staged reading uh, from our own membership of this piece at Aster. So lots of exciting things is happening at Aster, and people should um, register before the deadline. Um, so with that, why don't we dive right into our first topic. So 
There, it, there has been, and we have been seeing reports over the past several years, um, uh, commentary about the decline of movie theater attendance. And we wanted to explore the ramifications that this might have for theater. Um, and I feel like this could go in a variety of different directions, right? Um, is, this a, is, is the decline in people's uh, inclination to go to movie theaters an opportunity for uh, theater audiences to grow? Is it demonstrating something about the way that people consume entertainment or culture now that's instructive for theater and, and performance studies scholars? There are all sorts of ways to attack this question, but I thought I would throw it first to Sarah Bejung, um, who is obsessed with matters of liveness and mediation um, and, and is a major expert on the topic. So Sarah, uh, tell us what you made of, of these reports. Well, I, I think I would say I'm probably a minor expert on the topic rather than a major one, but that's the, the <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, so uh, part of the thinking for me behind this came out of a, a, an interactive piece over the summer in the New York Times online um, from June called How Will the Movies, parenthetically, as we know them, survive the next 10 years? And uh, since coming to Toronto, uh, which has its own um burgeoning and ever-expanding uh, media industry, there's been a lot of uh, thinking about uh, about the relationship between streaming, theatrical releases, uh, television, uh, and I'm just struck by the rhetoric that I am hearing from contemporary movie makers, I- including both kind of auteur, avant-garde, um, independent um, filmmakers, as well as Hollywood black you know, Hollywood blockbusters thinking about um, the movie theater attendance. And it and it strikes me that it is uh, shockingly similar to the same kinds of conversations that and anxieties that theater people expressed uh, about 80 years ago or so. Right. So there's this idea that somehow and in fact, the language that that movie uh, uh, movie producers and, and sort of Hollywood types have been taking up is the language of of the of the importance of theatricality uh, for the movie going experience, right? And like, how do we, you know, kind of put it in into these spaces? And and at the same time, you're seeing such a proliferation of social media content, including the the newest one, you know, that's it's not very old now, coming out in TikTok, right? So the circulation of these kind of unattributed six you know, what is it, six to 10 second um, movies, videos that are circulating, um, to what extent is now the live becoming the new, the new fetishized experience? <laughs> and, and thinking of the, if we sort of look at what, what has happened in, in music production, right? It used to be that you went on tour as a professional musician in order to sell recordings of your music, which is where you made the money. Now with streaming and, and licensing, you don't make any money off of your, uh, music anymore. So you produce the music and you circulate essentially, f- you know, virtually free recordings in order to sell tickets to your uh, live shows, which is where you make the money. And those live shows have become really interesting forms of theater, um, you know, including picking up like, you know, theater director or theater designers like Ez Devlin, among among others. So so I'm just really interested in 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 the similarities between uh theater history of the last hundred years or so and the parallels in contemporary um, media. And so I was I was sort of 
curious to ask the both of you is, you know, people who think about historical and contemporary performance and have done theater history, like, like knowing what you know about the history of theatrical performance and what's what it's how it's happened and evolved and changed in various cultural contexts. You know, if you had to predict, what would you say is going to be the future of of you know, movie of people going to, to, to movies and consuming other kinds of media. Harvey, do you want to take that question? Yes. And, <laughs> and, and, and I will start by saying that the similarities between the two forms in part anchor themselves in the thought that both cinema and theater are always dying. Hmm. If you, you know, think about the, the, the history of, of 20th century uh, theater, it's always been this sense of decline. Right? Uh, there's always a concern about where would the next audience come from? Uh, will exist a generation from now? And then certainly for film, with the advent of television, you know, that conversation began to occur more and more. So I think that we're continually sort of asking ourselves, why are these media relevant? And and for both, it has to do with liveness. People like to be co-present with others and share in the telling of a story. We know that narrative quite well for theater, that it's the live event, but I think that there's been a resistance within cinema studies uh, and uh, other forms of sort of media relay to talk about how liveness and audiencing matters. But we know if you look at the popularity of blockbusters, comedies, thrillers, horror films, that those genres are thriving uh, still within the cinema because of the need for you to witness and, and your desire to witness it with other people. Um, Oscar Eustace has this uh, argument that he makes about the difference between theater and film, which is that if you walk into an empty movie theater to see something you bought a ticket for, you're excited because you're like, oh, I'm going to have a private experience. It's just me and the screen. I can zone out. Um, you're actually happy about that. If you walk into a theater where you bought a ticket and there's no one there, you're bummed out. You feel like, oh, this is not the experience I was looking for. So there's something about the presence of the actors, the presence of the performers, and that feedback loop that's important. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I, th I think that comparison is changing. I think that that increasingly people who, um, uh, I think f folks who go to the movie theater, I think, I think whereas it used to feel like a special private thing um, to see a movie by yourself, no longer feels that way. I think it because because the the question is one of space, but it's also one of scale, right? So the idea of getting a private screening on a big screen by yourself is now roughly achievable within many, uh, you know, relatively inexpensive home movie setups. And in fact, I don't think that there's a coincidence between the creation of of the movie theater reclining chair. And the the fact that that now is is mimicked in many home movie going experiences. So I do think that when you make the choice to go to see a, a film on the big screen, there is an expectation of people who are going to be there. Um, and in fact, now 
in many places, you can choose your ticket, right, your seats, and you order those online. So, I mean, it's really interesting looking at just like in a very logistical sense, how going to the movies now looks a lot more like the experience of going to see a play. And I, I wonder for for many of us whether or not seeing a movie by ourselves in a giant empty movie theater is does feel like a special thing or doesn't feel like, oh, is this a movie that everybody else knows is really bad and I missed the boat on this. I think that's a good I think that's a, a good point that that presumption is not necessarily holding up. Um, so I have a little bit of a <laughs> a complicated argument or assessment on this question that I want to put out there for you guys. And I'm going to try to condense it down to a couple of minutes. So it doesn't, isn't just this, you know, endless monologue that people want to skip through. But I basically, the, the place where I'm headed is that I think this phenomenon of declining movie theater attendance um, actually demonstrates that theater has sort of become, that, that these relationships are dominated more, more by a model of sort of cultural economy and prestige and less about entertainment dollars and cultural consumption going you know, among different areas, including theater. Movie theater attendance is dropping rel- relatively quickly. There's something like a negative compound annual growth rate of 2%. In 2017, ticket sales in movie theaters went down 6% from the previous year. So it's going down pretty quickly as people stay home and, and stream or watch video games. Over the same time period, and I was looking at the TCG Theater Facts Report from 2017, stats that you find online suggest that theater attendance and theater revenue is kind of holding steady. I would imagine that theater audiences are actually declining a little bit, but Broadway revenue is up. Um, uh, the TCG trend theaters are earning more money, actually, a little bit year over year. Their expenses are going up, but and they're getting more of that income from contributions and less from ticket sales. But theater is kind of holding steady. It doesn't seem like theater is losing audiences or losing money to the big home TV and streaming setups. So what this suggests to me is that what's happening is a sort of transference of cultural activity between different screenal medias, people staying home more, going to movie theaters less, and that it's not really about like, like theater audiences aren't as susceptible to that. And I would say that the reason for that um, is not necessarily medium specificity. In other words, I don't think it's necessarily so much when you go to the theater, you're in this communal experience that's um, dynamic and human. I went to see a great production of, of um, Angels in America Perestroika at the St. Louis Rep a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it was a very good production, but I didn't feel, I felt distance from the actors. I don't feel like the, I didn't feel like the actors sort of understood that I was there or were reading the energy of the audience that much. It felt, it was so professionally and slickly produced that it felt kind of like a film in certain ways. I think what it is, is that theater has become more like a kind of art economy that people go to the theater, not exclusively, but increasingly because it's a kind of bourgeois phenomenon. And the, the cultural capital of theater is valuable in part because the accessibility is less so that it's like going to an art museum or an art gallery. You're going to the theater to consume something precisely because it's not something you can just get for 12 bucks and it's something that you need to, you know, more educated people with higher social capital go there more frequently. So that to me suggests that it's, it's not a threat to theater. It's not necessarily an opportunity to theater that people are doing this. Um, 
What it suggests to me about the future, though, is that movie theater going is probably going to go in two directions. I don't know which one it'll go more in. One is that it will become sort of like theater, where there's art house movie experiences. It's, it remains social. It's sort of There's a kind of a barrier to understanding it and appreciating it. And so art house theaters will continue to thrive. Um, and then on the other side, I feel like if people continue to go to movie theaters, it will be, be because it's more like an amusement park. The sound is unbelievable. The, the visuals are overwhelming. It's like taking a roller coaster ride, right? Um, so maybe there's going to be bifurcation. I'm interested to know if you guys think one or another of those models will do better with film, given the analysis I've, I've tried to put out there. What do you guys think? I, I think that that sort of distinction of, of the art house experience versus the blockbuster amusement park is a really interesting one, um, in part because they both come back around to something that I think is really, you know, if you has been, there's a model in theater for that as well, right? We're in the sort of off-Broadway, you know, repertory, small, intimate house um, uh, model versus the the spectacular, um, you know, option and and the sort of increasing uh, expanse. And I'm not just talking about sort of like, you know, big musicals of the late 20th century. I'm thinking about, you know, the whatever, the Ben-Hur on stage with the live horses and the treadmills, right? You know, the sort of, um, uh, you know, extreme hyper-realism of the late 19th and, and early 20th century um, before cinema essentially replaced that. I, I wonder to what extent these kinds of modes of spectatorship, and my hope is that the theme park blockbuster overwhelm your senses doesn't eclipse the market for the small kind of rarefied because I think you know when I lived in Portland Maine I didn't get to see movies a a great variety of movies um, that I get to see here and I only get to see them because of where I live and my proximity to this one you know this one this one movie place. That's what I guess that's part of the concern in the movie industry is that Netflix will become so big, they'll actually buy movie theaters, they'll control so many outlets that they'll just choose which movies get made and they won't fund the smaller movies. But I don't know, Harvey, what do you what do you think about the future of movie going as a spectatorial practice given these conditions? I agree with what you and, and Sarah just said in terms of this splitting of the art house and the popular, uh, but that splitting's been happening for a while now. It's been happening you know, across the 20th century, yeah, right? So, you know, from the point when people would go before television where people would go to the movie theater often, you know, twice a week or more, uh, to having to choose when and why to go. My sense of it, though, is that uh, the popularity of the art house cinema is one in which it allows you to find your community. Uh, like, yes, you can have your own home theater setup, but even within households, not everyone has the same set of tastes. And you can you can you can go and and see that story, you know, hear that narrative that you know, appeals to you, inspires you, uh, you know, among like minded individuals. And I think that the other part, the big blockbusters, the spectacle, the celebrity aspect of it has this galvanizing uh, role in in which it invites people from all demographics to come together. So you want to see Avengers Endgame, and you want to see it on a giant screen with that level of sound and hundreds of people cheering and rooting with you. And I think that's that's the the draw of it. And if there's ever a reminder of 
the popularity or the enduring popularity of cinema, I always think, uh, let's look at the Oscars and, and the, the thrall around that, that everyone wants to share in the viewing of the Oscars because it ties into this experience that you all, everyone, many of us have had at the movie theater, you know, whereas there's not the same appeal uh, with the Tony Awards, for example. Yeah. So let's move on to another uh, topic that addresses the social dimension of spectatorship. We're going to talk about texting and other putatively disruptive audience behaviors in the theater. We read Lily Janiak's uh, essay in the San Francisco Chronicle's date book blog entitled The Dog Whistle of Phones in Theater or Why Audience Behavior is Always the Wrong Conversation. This is her analysis of the flap around Jeremy O'Harris's Twitter comments about texting in the theater. Um, Harvey, what did you think about this uh, essay or this event? And what do you think about the, the tendency to coerce silence and uh, other types of behavior out of audiences? Yes. Yeah, so the root of this, as a reminder to our listeners, uh, is uh, in slave play, uh, Jer- Jeremy O'Harris, uh, not in the play itself, but writing about his experiences, essentially being backstage with a variety of guests coming through, noting that not only was a production held for Rihanna to attend, but during the per- performance, during the production, Rihanna was texting him while the show was going on. Uh, and 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 Jeremy O'Harris uh, expressing his enthusiasm for that texting. Uh, and there was a backlash uh, to people noting that, hey, in the theater, your phone should be off. You shouldn't be texting. There shouldn't be a bright screen distracting others. Uh, you know, that reactivated a conversation around theater etiquette. And you might recall uh, in the past, uh, not too long ago, Dominique Morso has written about the uh, importance of making sure that people can respond however they want to respond uh, to a live a live event. Uh, so this is revisiting a conversation related to how one should or should not act and what should be our expectations related to um, the manners with which people uh, participate and react to the performances. Uh, but I have a question for both you, panel and Sarah. Uh, are there things that you feel as though people should not be doing, such as, you know, should a person be able to uh, text or email or be on their phone during a show? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I guess I, I am very sympathetic to the arguments that the the phenomenon of theater audiences sitting still and quietly and never even whispering to anyone around them and being and trying to just utterly disappear that that's historically bounded. Theater was not always that way. Um, people should be able to relax. They should be able to focus on what's going on on stage and also tune out a little bit of stuff going on around them. I'm sympathetic to that. I really am. But the, the cell phone screen is so bright. And it, it, I was trying to think about recent theater experiences I've had and how distracting and how destructive it can be if someone right in the row in front of you or a couple rows in front of you pulls out this big glowing iridescent iPhone 10 or whatever. Um, I think ultimately, I, I, I do think that theaters should relax a little bit and theater audiences foremost should relax a little bit when people are unwrapping candy or, you know, whispering to each other, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that I'm ever going to be comfortable myself pulling out my cell phone, though, just because it is like a Klieg light <laughs> going off in someone's face. Though I'll make a little amendment to that, which is that 
taking the cue from our prior segment, different types of theater spectatorship experiences are different. And sometimes it's very dark and very quiet and all your attention is being drawn into a stage and that light is very bright. And sometimes you're sitting near the event. It feels more raucous. It feels more um, uh, rebellious or um, disruptive already. And then that type of behavior might be more acceptable. So... I think my answer is we should all relax a little bit, but I'm still keeping my cell phone in my pocket. So I'm very sympathetic to the whole, it kind of depends on on what's going on in this space. I mean, I think there are a couple of, of objections, right? One is the sort of etiquette side, um, but there's also like the very real, um, you know, the recording or the, and the filming. Um, and, and, you know, one of the great ironies, of course, um, of this particular situation, is it ironic or is it just coincidental? I, I, I don't know. But the um, is that you know, of course, you're you, you're not allowed to. You have to lock up your your cell phone um, to go see a Rihanna concert, right? <laughs> so, um, and there was this. I think there was a story a while back about like um, um, Lin Manuel Miranda like not meeting Madonna because she had been on her phone in the middle of his show. But of course. Madonna also requires that you lock up your phone in order to go see her show, right? So so there's a, you know, the, the thing about phones is it's like, I feel like there's always a kind of, it's fine if I'm doing it because I'm, <laughs> I know what I'm doing and I'm, you know, but if you're doing it, well, there's a problem, you know? And, and so I think that it's, it's, it actually comes down to a kind of profound social problem, which is that different people enter the social space with different expectations yes. and different commitments to being in that space. And I think where th- where people have been very, and I think rightly critical of theater is, is the sense in like where it's like, okay, now we're basically going to tell everybody what the rules of this space are. And if you want to get in, you're going to conform to them. And if you don't, you're a problem and we'll identify you as such. What are your thoughts on people using their phones to record the play that's in progress. You know, so, you know, when you're at a rock concert and someone's favorite, your favorite song is, is playing and you, you the phone uh, gets turned on and you want to capture that moment. You know, what do you think about people who, in a play, want to record what's going on? I don't know. I find I've, every time I've seen that type of behavior, I found it kind of irritating, but I don't think that my reaction was necessarily... Um, reflective. In other words, I think I, I have absorbed over my many decades of being alive, just those, those norms that belong to the theater. And my reaction to that is, oh, this, you know, this person doesn't understand, or they don't know that you're not supposed to do that, or, you know, a variety of different sort of negative responses that are basically old man yells at cloud from the sentence. Um, uh, Everyone should get off panels digital. Yeah, get off my lawn. Um, uh, but it's also, I, I don't know. Now I'm, now I'm beginning to be more attracted to a kind of devil's advocate argument rather than just saying all this behavior should be embraced. I think people's attachments to their phones are a problem. And at least these phones are new technology. We're figuring out, you know, how much they affect our lives when someone is when you're having lunch with someone or with when someone's a student's in a classroom and they pull their phone out and look at it it's not just that they are distracting people around them but there's the sense of disrespect there's the sense of you know i'm not as interested this situation's not interesting enough to you for you to resist the urge to pull the phone out and check and see if you have any notifications so that broader social norms are evolving and i actually think there'll be 
it's a pretty there's a fair amount of accord between cell phone etiquette out of the theater and inside the theater. I, 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 I was thinking that, and I'm not, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but the way I view it is that people have increasingly become accustomed to a mediated perspective on life. You know, and what I mean by that is that uh, you're snapping pictures of your food. Uh, there are so many photos that exist on our cell phones. Like how many thousands of photos are there that are just kind of parked there you know, that we're used to always looking at life in real time through the lens of our camera. And it seems natural for you to uh, not shift perspective, but just to your norm, which is to say that you're going to record you know, what's happening before you, even if that's occurring within the space of a movie theater. Now to put that aside and think about what is it like to sort of sit next to someone who's recording. I, I completely agree. I, I have that sense of frustration if someone whips out their cell phone and they're recording things are next to me and I think, oh, that's terrible. How dare you do that? But I'm also the same person who goes on YouTube you know, as a critic and historian searching for that person who illegally captured a recording of Hamilton or whatever else and I'm thrilled that person was there and I'm so excited that someone had the bravery and the guts to uh, document this event so that I could witness it uh, at, at a remove. So I, I realized my own hypocrisy, that I can be critical when I'm there as an attendee, but as an outside person, I really want as many perspectives on the live event to circulate as possible. There's um, uh, years ago, uh, Ann Bogart had a had a blog post about her annoyance with people taking pictures of artwork in museums, um, as as creating this mediated barrier between themselves and the experience of 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 the artwork. Um, and I I wrote about that in a. a 2010 essay that was in uh, Henry Bile and Scott Mogelson's um, theater historiography, Critical Interventions, in terms of talking about the same phenomenon happening in, a, in, in theater settings. And what does it mean um, for us to understand a mediation or a recording or feel compelled to, um, to create our own kind of um, simultaneous archive of an event that we're also experiencing live. Um, and I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but but um, Hep and Coldry's um, The Mediated Construction of Reality, which is a kind of, I think it's from 2017 now, um, a couple of sociologists and media theorists kind of thinking about what is our experience. I think things increasingly don't feel real unless we've recorded them. Um, other folks like Tara McPherson have referred to this as the archival turn of kind of contemporary, you know, early 21st century life. But it's interesting to think about how um, how new revelations of data privacy breaches and also then the fact that we know that our media uh, are increasingly tracking what we record, but also what we look at, right? So Instagram, for example, tracks how long you look at certain images and uses that in the algorithm of what it what it what it feeds you. And I'm thinking also then, and this kind of folds back into our last topic, right? But of uh, of a project like Bandersnatch by Netflix, which um, leaves certain viewership. Uh, options 
And I really wonder about the presence of AI increasingly in terms of dictating what we view, analyzing how we view it, and and increasingly using that information to craft new things back to us, right? So that in some ways we're inadvertently responsible for creating our own our own content, or at least that seems where it feels like where it's. So moving. it's the implication that like we have our cell phones in these theaters. I mean, this is something that is true about the GPS on your phone. Like it will know that you know certain people because you go to a certain gym. So it knows you're at this gym for X number of hours a week. It knows who else is there. These people start to show up in your social media feed. So is it possible, it's certainly possible that the AI could also detect spectatorship practices. It can tell when you're at a movie theater. It can tell when you're at a certain play. Um, It can start to infiltrate your social media experience. Um, this is th- well. That, that I mean, that's the whole under. That was the original. I mean, Netflix only turned into a content producing entity relatively recently. Originally, it 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 had everything available back when it was a, a DVD. You know, through the mail subscription service, the thing that made Netflix distinct was that it had um, an algorithm uh, that would predict and help you find the movies that you were most interested in. So the I think it's really important to remember that kind of underlying underlying layer in in all of these media services. It's the same thing like I mean I don't know why anyone thinks that their phone microphone doesn't listen to them just cuz they push a little button on their screen that makes it look like Siri is turned off, right? It's just Siri doesn't respond to you, but the microphone is there, the information is there. Of course, why like why wouldn't it why wouldn't your phone be tracking and listening. I mean, that's really, really valuable information. Like nobody leaves that on the table, it seems to me. This is interesting because it's not, I feel like in this conversation, we've gone from the presumption of what are we going to do with these norms or or how irritated should we be at people who are irritated about norms evolving in the theater to recognizing that the presence of the cell phone in the theater is actually about how much of our brains is actually entangled in artificial intelligence and and this whole giant category of our waking experience, which is now on the screen itself. It's a nice inversion. I'm reminded at this moment of the practice of people posting an Instagram photo or a photo of the playbill. That seems to be the kind of you know, sophisticated theater audiences convention. You want everyone to know that you were at this show and saw it, but you're going to snap a little photo, uh, just the way that Sarah did of of the program of of Slave Play recently. You're going to share the fact that you saw a play, but you're not as an educated or sort of, I don't know, um, acculturated theater audience member. You're not going to try to take a photo of what's going on on stage. You're going to let it be of the program and then move on from there. I think I'm edu- glad that you see me as sophisticated. <laughs> and and educated. I, I feel I feel totally validated and seen <laughs> now. It's not some blurry photo of an actor on stage, fifty feet away, uh, doing something you can't tell what they're doing. And and of, and of course, there's always the ushers, who are there to remind you of when you are violating the norms of that venue. Well, so, some of us they remind, some of us they don't, right? right? Yeah, I mean, so like some like, some people get away with it. That's true, but there's always that point where I'm, I'm mindful of the usher who races down an aisle, you know, to scold someone for taking a picture, and it always seems inappropriate. It always seems um, the usher, it, 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 the usher. It, it, it always it always seems to be this moment in which theater is not being inclusive. You know, when that person calls out an individual for daring to take a picture. Well, let's um, 
let's move on to our third topic. Um, uh, we looked at Waterwell Theater's The Flores exhibits. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, um, Waterwell Theater has allowed Astor to do a stage reading of The Courtroom, another sort of verbatim theater project that looks at the phenomenon of immigration and deportation and detention on September 18th, Waterwell launched the Flores Exhibits Project. You can look at this on their website, www.flores-exhibits.org. Um, the project is named after a 1997 agreement called the Flores Settlement Agreement, which limited the length of time that a child can be detained um, and guarantees access to nutrition, hygiene, supplies, and clothing and basic human needs for um, child detainees. So this summer, in the midst of the escalating border um, crisis, uh, a team of lawyers took testimonies from children that were in U.S. custody about their stays in the detention facilities. Um, the Trump administration is trying to eliminate the Flores settlement protections entirely, which would mean there would be no limitation on the amount of time uh, that a child could be detained or any guaranteed support of any type. The videos are read by a range of performers. There are some actors in the list of people doing the, the readings, but it's also a lot of um, lawyers, activists, former judges. The mise-en-scene is interesting. It's sort of what I would call a Spalding Gray setup. Each, each of the readers is sitting at a small wooden table. There's a chair, there's a glass of water, and a text, a printed out text that they're reading from. Um, the action is very simple. The, the performers read the, the testimony from start to finish, including um, some of the identifying information and, and legal um, language at the beginning and end of the testimonies. Um, there's no sound or conspicuous lighting effects. Um, and it's, it's really gripping. Um, the videos are anywhere from like two to, I don't know, some of the longer ones I saw were five or six minutes long. Um, and I'm not sure what you guys thought. Um, but to me, one of the most compelling things is the tension in watching how the performer contains or expresses their emotions. Um, I would guess that the direction of the project did not ask the performers to emote in any particular way or to show their feelings, but really just to read the text out loud. Um, but in many cases, it's very clear how difficult it is for the performers to read these um, testimonies. Uh, exhibit number four in particular was one where you could feel the actor really holding back um, reading the words of a young woman or a 16-year-old um, with a one-year-old baby tell about how her baby would ask for um, the father who had been separated from the mother and child. And it's, um, it was gripping and, and upsetting to watch. Um, I don't know. What, what did you guys think about this? What were your reactions? Uh, I mean, I, I, I found it heartbreaking, um, as I think many people find the current situation, I kind of uh, can't really believe that this is a reality that that continues, um, that feels at the same time so intractable, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's one of the, the features of, of a number of kind of contemporary re realities that, that 
to me at least, just speaking for myself, don't don't feel real, and and I would never have imagined them to be to be possible in my lifetime. Right? I feel like we are living in a time that, in many ways, uh, felt like fantasy. You know, either history or fantasy, and it's it's really shocking to feel like one is living in a state, and I mean that not in a particular place, but simply a moment in in time in which uh, in which there are there is is such callousness being uh, exhibited and and violence against people who are, are truly so vulnerable with with so so few apparent consequences or retributions and and I just I mean it's I find it it is hard for me to conceptualize it right it's like it, it feels like a nightmare from which I keep trying to wake up and I I wasn't aware of the the Flores project until until panel panel brought it to to our attention for the podcast and and I find it it riveting and 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 vital uh, and and as important, you know, as important a thing as anyone can sort of look at online. But I also am am deeply humbled and ashamed by my own inability to respond with anything more than uh, expressions of, of 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 grief and dismay. Uh, and 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 that's hard. I mean, I wonder about how the form of theater continually returns to, to this style of, of reader's theater, essentially, uh, to make us all slow down and attend to the perspectives and life experiences of other people. You know, so I'm thinking of like the exonerated, I'm thinking obviously of this piece here, uh, where uh, that it's not fiction, it's not getting lost in illusion uh it's not escapism in any way it's stripping things down to the point where it's an actor or two actors in a room before an audience just telling someone's story directly at you uh and that's powerful and and but i I keep thinking about that that why is it that it's this form of sort of testimonial uh presentation i don't know yeah i agree i mean there, there are times when i feel that theater there's a lot of sort of activist oriented theater there are a lot of projects going on around climate change for example that um, theater artists are are pushing forward and there are times when i'm a little bit cynical about these where i think that you know the time and effort and organizing that goes into making a theater event might actually be more efficacious it was if it was redirected into I don't know, direct actions or attempts to influence legislatures or other other sort of, I don't know, non-theatrical political activism. But um, it is an interesting point and undeniable when you watch these videos that there's something about the theatrical setup of it. Um, even though it's very stripped down, there's no sort of mood music or lighting effects, nothing to really try to get in between you and the text other than the actor's interpretation, um, that it really allows that emotion to come up. Um, in effect, what this project is, is it's making that it's drawing your attention to the transcripts, to these testimonies that are the word, the words of the detained young people and children. Um, and they could just post the PDFs of the documents online and you could read through them. But 
reading the words privately to yourself doesn't, I think people wouldn't hang in there. You would lose focus, but then watching an actor or a performer do that for you and, and not just hearing the words that have been said by a detained child, but watching someone not in that situation read and try to suppress their own feelings or, or manage their own feelings in that moment. Um, it's really powerful. So I do think it's an, it's an instance of theatrically um, embodied activism really serving the purpose. Um, but hopefully, you know, hopefully the, hopefully the emotions you feel aren't just sort of cathartic or sympathetic pleasure. Hopefully it's not just the sort of feeling of, um, being moved that in other theatrical situations is just an effort to, you know, is, is the sort of point itself, but it spurs further action, further communication about this issue, which is easy to forget about. Well, there, and thus we return to Brecht. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I was thinking, I've, I've heard the, this idea before. The, you know, and the, and the, the, the tension, I mean, I'm, I was thinking as Harvey was talking about, um, I feel like, you know, those of us who are on various forms of social media, all we do is consume other people's stories all day long. Um, and so there's something about the 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 focus and also the overt theatricality of this presentation that that hits a kind of interesting intersection of verbatim and and real and yet is is stylized and aestheticized enough that we can see and hear it in a different way than we do all the pictures and stories and and circulation of 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 lived experience that are constantly bombarding us now and i think i think you know it again strikes me as a very fundamentally brechtian idea all right so we're going to move on folks to our drafts um um harvey will you start us off so my current draft ties in with my previous episode's draft, uh, which involved Little Shop of Horrors. And <laughs> I've heard about this from listeners. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and in the, in the previous draft, I, t- I talked about its, its return and how it seems to be uh, appearing everywhere, and then also a protest that I uh, witnessed in, in one of the stagings. And, and this current draft, it's, it's actually thinking about the the viral circulation, the social media circulation of suddenly Seymour uh, from the Pasadena Playhouse production of Little Shop of Horrors featuring uh, MJ Rodriguez and George Salazar. Uh, and you know, what does it mean to have Little Shop of Horrors uh, to be uh, uh, th- you know, through great casting and uh, uh, you know, high, with t- highly talented actors? to have that narrative shift because we, we, in which, you know, when it's actors of color, when there's a transgender actor uh, in the lead, how does that make you rethink and reframe the racial politics of that particular play? You know, how does it make you rethink the gendered politics of that play as well? Lines. Do you feel like those sort of casting moves, let's call them sort of conspicuous casting, uh, though actually all, all casting is pretty conspicuous now when you're reviving old musicals. Do you feel like that that creates a strategy that would allow some of these older shows that aren't aging well to have new life? Yes, it, that's been true for Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very old shows. It, it, yes, that that uh, 
multicultural uh, and uh, non-traditional casting has really given new life to Shakespeare across regional stages for decades now. And this isn't celebrity casting either. This is something beyond that. And you know, so I'm curious to, in a way, I almost want to compare the new uh, Michael Mayer uh, production of Little Shop of Horrors with Jonathan, is it Groff? Goff? Groff? What's Groff? Uh, in the lead with this Passing the Playhouse production to see how sort of race and gender are configured differently in two simultaneously running productions. Sounds, sounds like a great TJ article, and I look forward to reading it after you have written it and gotten it published, Harvey. <laughs> uh, listening to you talk though Harvey it just it reminds me like the the way in which like Shakespeare is, is like a zombie right it's just like it's like it's like the undead right and you could throw whatever you want at it that it will never die um, Sarah do you want to give us your draft oh sure mine is the um, so as as we're sort of in the run up to, to conference and as I'm attending a, a whole bunch of new conferences um and and things i am i am you know and in the in the wake of the the global climate strikes of the last few weeks um i i am coming to the not terribly original um or insightful conclusion that that i I do believe our uh, travel patterns are at some point they're simply going to have to change and so i'm thinking about my my role as a sort of global theater goer who prides myself on being able to see a lot of things and and visit a lot of people and talk to them in different in different ways um and and the tremendous resources that i consume in doing that uh i don't for a moment think that whatever benefit i bring is worth the resources i consume so i'm sort of in a position where I think, you know, I, I can't even I can't really justify that. Um, and at the same time, then thinking about okay, so the future of our conferences and and what are those going to look like? And I I really believe more and more that we should be investing in some really robust conversations and uh, involving logistics and materials about um, about what a what a conference in which people, you know do not physically attend. I don't know how many more conferences I can, I can, you know, go to before, um, or how many any of us can go to before we really confront the end of the end of the of the mass migration conference. Yeah, I think that this is to, to, to tag in real quickly on this. I do think that I think our field is specific in that we, you know, often need to see things live, but that's a minor phenomenon in my mind compared to the, the sort of big uh, yearly conference gatherings where everyone's catching a flight. And I do think that scholarly communication can happen over the internet. I do think that you could still vet proposals, rank proposals, put them in a program, um, and, and start to shift either by alternating conference meetings or making it so that you know, a portion of conference proceedings are through a, a video call or some sort of shared online platform, you could actually start to make a dent in that expenditure of, um, of, of travel resources. And I think it's worth trying to do. I think we should have a on-tap on virtual symposium. 
I am a big fa- I am a big fan of that. I mean, I actually so so I mean, a, a few people have asked me about this. I mean, so in in case you don't know or you haven't figured out Panel Harvey and I always record separately, you know, with rare exception. It's always in a kind of virtual space, um, which through the wizardry of, you know, technology uh, allows us to to have an engaged conversation. I, I don't know why we couldn't look at ways to kind of scale up this this model. Yeah, it's worth it's worth taking seriously. All right. Sarah's got to bail out. I'm going to real quick share my draft. Bye, Sarah. Thank you. Um, uh, my draft is really just a. Uh, uh, reference to a New York Times article that was published recently by Emma Goldberg. It's entitled Do Works by Men Toppled by Me Too Belong in the Classroom? There are interviews with several college professors who've made different kinds of decisions about whether or not um, uh, you know, authors, artists who are known to have uh, committed crimes or, or engaged in a pattern of abusive behavior ought to still have their works taught. And this is on my mind because I'm teaching a comedy class this semester after a few years not having taught it. And I decided to put Bill Cosby on the syllabus. Um, and I'm not sure I have the right answer to this. This is a difficult thing. Um, he's one of the people whose behavior was just among the worst of, of some recent prominent figures who um, their their patterns of sexual abuse were exposed. Um, and he is also one of the most important contributors to 20th century stand-up comedy. And so the, the solution that I have tried this semester, we'll see how it goes, is I put him on the syllabus. There's a day when we're going to be discussing him and, the, and, and himself his comedy special, but I've made it optional for students. In other words, if they don't feel like watching that show and sitting and and talking about Bill Cosby in class is going to be, if they feel like it's going to be too tough for them, they can opt out. There won't be a penalty. Um, But anyways, it's been on my mind because on the one hand, I'm persuaded by people who say you can't scrub the canon um, for everyone we know who has done something terrible. Um, There's a kind of denialism about that or a kind of censorship about that that doesn't seem intellectually honest. On the other hand, mandating that students um, engage seriously, sustainedly with um, the work of someone that they know has committed um, some really awful crimes, that doesn't seem... I'm not entirely I'm not uh, entirely comfortable with that either. So that article is an interesting exploration for those of us who feel like they're in that position. Okay. That's a good point. And, and it is challenging because when you think about how history remembers individuals, it's not it's not their biographies in terms of, you know, the specifics of their personal life. It tends to be, you know, what are their achievements? Uh, what, what are their co- cultural contributions? And, you know, we remember what like, Einstein did in terms of uh, innovations, uh, but less about his day-to-day life uh, and social interactions. Uh, you know, so it, I mean, there is a way in which we have to figure out how to account in the 21st century for fusing biography with cultural contributions. Yeah, yeah, it's it's difficult. It takes added consideration, and you you kind of have to separate it in certain ways prior to that scandal coming to light. And that was just, you know, like four or five, I think it was like five or six years ago when it first blew up, everyone would say that Bill Cosby was one of the greatest stand-up comedians to ever do it. In fact, people still say that. And he was massively influential. Um, 
so you wouldn't want to deny that, but um, forcing students to to have that intimate confrontation with with someone like that is a, it's a tricky thing. So it's on my mind. Um, Harvey, thank you, Sarah. She has already signed off, but thank you, Sarah and listeners. Thanks for downloading and streaming. And, um, our next episode will be recorded at Aster. Um, look for that in early November. Thank you very much. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast.